Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Chris Jennings. On today's show, I've got Mike Stewart, owner and operator of Wild Rose Kennels. He's going to come on the show today, and we're going to talk about picking a puppy and some different aspects to think about. But, Mike, welcome back to the Ducks Unlimited podcast. Thank you so much. Great being here. Awesome. You know, it's uh, it's an exciting time of year. You know, springtime, everyone gets excited. Um, and, you know, this is also a good time for people to go ahead and start the process of, you know, training and, and picking out a puppy. But that, but that's really the first stop in all of this is choosing a puppy. Um, and I wanted to bring you on the show for you to describe, you know, how you guys, how basically Wild Rose handles this, but also to give some tips to people uh, when they go to pick a dog or however they're going about this process. There's probably some things that people really need to know. And and we'll go ahead and let you start off with just, you know, what are some of the very, very first things that you recommend people to start thinking about when they're beginning this process? Well, I'm glad you mentioned what is first because I may surprise people a bit. It's not picking the puppy. It's, it's not the pick of the litter. In other words, you would say it's the pick of the litter. You need really need to do some homework before you make a a call on actually running out and buying a pup because you're looking for a, a 12, 14, 16-year commitment. So once you get this dog and it becomes a family member, uh, you better like him because that's what <laughs> you're going to have for a while. So I'm going to back it up a bit and say, let's think about picking letters. Let's think about uh, what we want three years from now. Uh, do you want a competition dog? Do you want a multi-game dog that can recover waterfowl or perhaps an upland dog? Do you want a pointing breed? Do you want a, a multi-purpose breed? What about companionship? Is it going to be a house dog? Uh, temperament of the dog, trainability. You really, when you're buying a puppy, you're buying a genetic package. You really need to know the sire and dame, what the background is, and you then you start picking the litter. From there, you pick the puppy. So we spent a lot of time at Wild Rose trying to deduce what a person really wants, what their expectations are a year or so down the road. He said, if I uh, work on the northern coastlines, this heavy water, uh, really cold like climates, we're going to re- make some recommendations on specific letters. Mm-hmm. If it's a person's first-time dog, um, maybe you want to think about what type of dog you're buying for your first experience. Are you wanting mainly a quail dog or you want a really hardy, cold-weather duck dog? So really begin with the end in mind. Then you start looking at breeders. Then you start looking at litters, specifically the sires and dames, and then you trickle on down. And so like even even there at Wild Rose, I mean, you guys are really getting into, um, you know, almost the genetics of it. So, you know, you have, you know, sire and dame that will, you know, potentially create a specific dog for a specific need. Or should I say maybe the best possible scenario to get what you're looking for? Um, is that kind of what you guys are doing? I mean, just to kind of break it down very basically. Yeah, that's exactly what we're doing. And we're, we have been in business now doing this for now several decades. And so we're in our fourth generation of some of these dogs. And that gives us a lot of predictability in field performance, but also health schemes. Uh, what problems we've had in the, uh, or a breeder needs to be able to articulate to any particular client what problems are in the line. Have they had their genetic testing properly done for hips, eyes, elbows, 
epilepsy, exercise-induced collapse, all these types of things that can really limit your dog's performance in the future. In the future, all of these are go into the consideration of where you purchase this particular puppy from a particular litter. So we try to steer people. We have a, it's not a waiting list. It, this is a little bit unusual at Wild Rose. We bulk people on specific litters versus putting on a list. For instance, a guy is determined he wants a waterfowl dog. I'd really like a yellow male. Right. We can do that. Instead of saying, okay, we'll put you on this litter. We're going to say, what type of environments you hunt in and where is the dog going to live? And they will help steer to a specific litter that would be forthcoming sometime in the next year hmm. uh, okay. versus trying to sell them a puppy that might be the next available. That may not be the best choice. So if you go to a breeder that is a breeder trainer or a breeder that has a lot of background in field performance, you stand a better chance of getting one than just running down to the local pet store or to a back, backyard operation that has puppies available that's in the newspaper on Sunday afternoon. What you're really doing is you're purchasing a genetic package of predictability. That's the way to think about it. No, yeah, that makes perfect sense. And, you know, it makes perfect sense for people to go into it. And that's a good point that you brought up when you started it. You know, I kind of started out as, hey, you're picking a puppy where really you've got to sit down and think exactly what you want in the dog, what you want to do. And then you can begin this process. And I think that, you know, that's awesome the way that you guys, you know, have that, the history of, you know, the genetics and the temperament and you can find, um, you know, find the right fit for the right her right dog for the right fit for the right person. Um, and that seems like, seems like a fantastic way to do it. Uh, once we get that process, once someone tells you, okay, Hey, I want the male yellow lab to be a duck hunting dog. Um, then when that dog is born, I mean, are you calling the people up and saying, Hey, your pup has been born or are you going to let that person show up? You know, there are a lot of people, and I know I did this back in my day when I first got my first dog, I kind of showed up at some farmer's house and, uh, and played around with the puppies for like 10 minutes and, right. and kind of pick. And I think a lot of people end up doing that. And, I, and, and is there anything that you can tell people, um, in that scenario, like something that maybe you should look for in a puppy? Back up to the first part of your question, when the puppy's actually born, uh, we will call the people that are booked on the specific letters and give them notification of the birth. And they'll say, yes, I can take that dog or not take that dog. So the second consideration, are you ready for the dog? So if it's extremely cold in Wisconsin and it's the snow and when these puppies and heavy snows are going to be going on in January and February, and that's when the puppies are going to be delivered, that may be not the best time to pick that puppy up. So we can roll them forward. So you have to think about the environment. Are you ready for that puppy? Well, I know that it's an emotional purchase when you actually get a dog or think about getting a dog, but then are you actually ready for it when when the time comes that the, the puppies will be available? Uh, then we will go out it, it, between eight and ten weeks. We, we like to deliver our pups at eight weeks, and then we will schedule the visit then. We don't allow our puppies to be really handle it all below six weeks of age, except by the vet techs. Uh, we're very, very strict on that. So we don't know import any type of uh, bacteria, disease, anything like that that comes from the outside. They live in a very sterile environment. During that time, we're doing what we call a super learner, super scent series where the, there's interaction, tactical interaction begins at about three days old. 
scent work begins at a week and a half. Oh, wow. So we start introducing a bird cocktail at a week and a half old, interchanged with the diabetic cocktails that we still place dogs with some diabetic uh, families. And the, you can imprint that scent at a very, very young age. And that rolls out into the fifth and sixth weeks. And then we take them into our out, outside the, the puppy environment to a, actually a walker room for dogs. It's a big playground. We have skateboards and feathers to chase and decoys, uh, metal to jump on. So it makes a lot of noise. We're playing soundtracks with gunfire and music. So it's a very noisy type of interchange. So ba- basically, um, the puppies come out very, very bold. When the people first come to see them and interact with them, they are stunned at how bold they are. So you want to make sure the puppies that you're selecting are coming from a, a program that uh, coming from a, a breeder that has a program that you, what I call a backgrounding program or the puppy socialization program, and it's very, very specific as to time frames of what you're engage, engaging with those pups at, at given age, at given weeks of age. So that's some of the things. And then, of course, in the, comes the picking part. Or what is that end of that first interaction actually supposed to be like? Well, different breeders do approach it a different way. Some breeders assign the puppy before you even get, you show up, your puppy's got an orange collar, that's your puppy. They try to, to diagnose uh, the temperament of the puppy as best as possible and match it to the client's expectations and what they have for deliverables. We, we think the puppy experience is one of the highlights of the family's life. You get to come and see all the puppies and see them interact. And so they all get in the, the, the we turn them loose in our, the rocker room. There's a tunnel they run through. They run the, over these little steps and through a tunnel and blast out and people are just absolutely thrilled. They fit, photograph the whole thing, video the whole thing, and they get to see the puppies actually play. And then they start engaging one by one, whether they wanted a male or a female or black or a yellow. What we break them out into the little groups and let the families interact with them. We, that's where it all starts. They sit down on the floor with them, they interact with them, and they choose their puppies. The puppies are all pre-microchipped. So at that point, we scan the microchip, write it on the AKC papers, hand them the AKC papers, and then they go through, uh, of course, our, they've already previously gone through a two-hour course before they ever touch that puppy. So we bring them into the classroom. They go through the whole experience of how to start the pup, all the things you're going to need, the how to set the home up, what are they, how they interact with the pup, how to house break, crate train, feeding schedules, before they ever touch that puppy. Once they get the puppy, then they have a general idea of what they should be doing with the pup. The microchip occurs, and then that's when the paperwork actually is a follow-up. Uh, at the end of the process. But to begin the process on puppy picking day, they tour the kennel. They meet the sires and dames. They're all on premises. They see how dogs are trained. We'll work a puppy in in the field with them, how to start the pup, and then we take them out and show them what a a started dog looks like. They they actually see water work and a dog actually working. Then they go through the classroom, which is two hours long, on, on backgrounding and there's, there's resources already on our website at uklabs.com. Scroll down to the center of the main page and there's 16 lessons on how we start a puppy. It'll give you step by step by step. That was produced by Perina. It's an Emmy award winning production and we love for everybody. It's absolutely complimentary on how you should start your puppy of any breed. Then they go down and actually touch the puppy. We begin with the educational process before they get into the emotional process. 
No, that's great. And then, and then, you know, that, that big day, you know, and obviously you've already set the groundwork with the two hour, um, class of training. And I'm sure most people that are picking up dogs from your place already have a pretty good idea, um, you know, of, of what their process is going to be like. But just as an example, you know, someone leaves wild rose kennels with one of your dogs, um, you know, you have that blueprint set as far as, you know, the wild rose way, even these video, you know, packets that, you know, you, you referenced there. Um, you know, what are some of the first things that you have just for people who maybe not have a chance to, uh, you know, get into any of that? What are the first things that you have people doing when they get their puppy home? Well, the video will describe some of this and it, it'll make it a little bit more clear. And also the, the first four chapters of our book are on how to background a pup this so retriever training for sporting dogs and retriever training the wild rose way. Uh, the forward is written by Ducks Unlimited and it's how we train Deke and Drake, the Ducks Unlimited mascot. But the first four chapters are how to lay down the foundational skills, which are exceptionally important. And that, that when it starts is the second you pick that puppy up. It doesn't start six months from now. It starts that day because these puppies are very impressionable. So whatever you repeat over and over again becomes a habit of that pup. You better like it. So we're very, it's, it's the list that we go over is probably as much what not to do is what to do. So we can take it from either angle. What to do, I love place training. That's an essential behavior. We start over with a raised platform called a Karanda bed and we teach the puppies place. And again, you can see these on videos and in the book it makes it much more clear. I'll refer you to uklife.com, but. It's a square platform. It has a plastic edge. It's, it's non-chewable. The pups can't chew on it. If they saw it, it's easily washed. It gives the puppy a defined edge to stay on. So it makes them real easy to teach them a place or to stay. And that begins day, day one in the home. We start with a little lead called a puppy wall. It's a little, uh, much, much works like a horse's hackamore. It goes around the puppy's neck. It gives it a little pressure around the neck. And you're not going to teach the dog to heal. You're just going to teach them to lead. I like to teach the puppy to tie out on a 10-foot steel cable, driven in the ground in the backyard, teaches them to tie out and give to the lead. Uh, you're going to have to tie, tie them at some point in duck camps. And in the duck line, they might as well look, learn to use it as one, get used to it as a one of the foundational skills. Uh, those are about three main things we actually start with. We feed and get the puppy on schedules. Dogs are all about routine. Get the puppy on a schedule. And, of course, crate training. Crate training for travel becomes the dog hive and the duck line. So if a puppy's comfortable in his crate, it's very easy to transfer that over to a dog hide or a boat line. So those are some of the essential behaviors. We'll start with a pup in the home day one. No, that's great. And really, you know, with that place training, I mean, that that's also, you know, you kind of alluded to it, but it's it's really the uh, beginning stages of steadiness in a duck blind. I mean, that's what that is. And it's kind of the the very first introduction to that. And that, you know, you and I have talked about that many times. It's such an important aspect of it. I know you guys do a lot of introductions, you know, even with the dogs that you have there that you're training, you do a lot of introductions with people and other dogs. And, you know, one of the tips that we have on our website here is just kind of refers to um, getting everyone involved with the process and the dog just to make, you know, familiarity. Um, you know, it, how do you guys do that there at Wild Rose? You know, how are you introducing these dogs to maybe other dogs or other people in different situations? Well, if we're talking about a puppy before it goes home at eight weeks of age, they get very little introductions to outside dogs because we don't want any disease transfer. 
they'll all go into super runner. At first off, they had an enclosed, heated and cooled environment, climatized, and they have these off-the-ground pins, and that's their playpen. Then we take them and put them on the ground. They interact with the pack. They interact with their own pack. And we have our vet, vet healthcare assistants we interact with them on the ground, sitting down with them, uh, calling them to the whistle, feathers, and so on. So they, they're very, we're very, very strict with them on interaction before that eight weeks old. Then when they go home, we suggest that they're going to get two shots in them, two vaccinations, inoculations under a doctor's care before they start interacting with other dogs or, or, or people and places and things. We're going to keep it in a sterile environment as possible, just like a newborn child. You're not going to take him to Walmart on the way home, you know. <laughs> so I uh, hope not. <laughs> so, you know, when we're traveling home with the dogs, our vet tech gives a long presentation on, on the health care of the pups. And she tells them, don't stop at a roadside park that says pets here. That's the worst place to go. You know, you're going to have to control the environment for the puppy for the first couple of weeks to make sure we stay away from Francis Parvo. Um, they've had one inoculation. That's not enough. You've got to build up that immune system before you start taking the pups. Then what you want to do is make sure all your interactions are very positive, uh, especially with neighboring kids coming over that could step on them, drop them, bringing other dogs in to interact. You have to be very careful of those initial uh, introductions, or they could go sideways on you really quickly and make a bad impression on that pup. That'll be, as I said, anything you put in that pup at a young age, you better like it. So you don't want that to be a bad experience. Anything should be very positive, uh, some real Problems would be to take them to a dog park. Would not recommend that. Taking them to a gun range to see if they're gun shy, they probably will be. You can imprint a lot of fear factors and not even realize it to a young puppy. So go slow. The, my, the old law I always use is make haste slowly. Make haste slowly. And you know, that's you, uh, you alluded to it, but you know, you mentioned there are so many things to not do and you've kind of talked about a few of them, but what are, are there any others that really stick out in your head for you to tell people, Hey, um, you know, the, when you first get your puppy home, don't do this. Don't, you know, things that you've heard other people do and you're just like, Oh no, that's a terrible idea. Uh, we call those the unintentional consequences. You think you're doing a good thing and it's really a bad thing from the dog perspective. Remember, this is a pack animal. And any behaviors you repeat over and over again that brings them pleasure is going to entrench that behavior, and it's very hard to get out. So let's name a few of those that we totally avoid. Free run of the house. We want place training. They can have as many places in you want in the house, but don't give them the territory to run everywhere. Uh, no dog in the wild is allowed to do that. They all have places in their in their packs Is that when they're little pups and little cubs. So you want to be, establish places in the home. Tug of war. Kids love to play tug of war, and I've even seen some videos produced of Bill Retrieve Drive. Uh, military dogs play a lot of tug of war. That is not what you want unless you want to be playing tug of war with a mallard. That is, you don't want to put in that behavior. It's quite different from training a bomb dog or a search and rescue dog on the tug of war so that we stay away from that one. A chew toys are basically out of the question. You don't want anything that's going to put in a hard mouth. And chew toys are, are really, really, uh, we say the, the pet stores where, you know, the pet dogs go, but it's not where the hunting dogs go. We want to keep chew toys out of the pup's mouth. He can eat the food. He can have a, uh, something he can consume like a dental bone, but nothing that would be a fabric or a ball or a, 
cloth type thing to chew on, or there's no difference in that in the bumper. We put in a behavior, now we have to take it out. So thinking through things, free swimming, uh, allowing the dog just to get jump in the uh, backyard pool or go to the pond and swim and swim and swim, turns into a water freak. Gets out there, won't come out of the water. So that makes it very difficult for you. Uh, and mentioned introducing gunfire. People will say, okay, I'm going to go out and shoot around the dog and make sure he gets acclimated to gunfire. You can easily put in a fear factor. It mysteriously, and I don't, I can't answer the question of why. I just know it exists after years of doing it. You can take a young dog to a pup to the range, have him on the four track, shoot around him, and he shows no fear at that time until he's about eight or nine months old when you start trying to introduce gunfire and then you've got a gunshot dog. It transfers itself for some reason, and really that may not show up when he's young, but it could be a problem later on. So be very careful with your gunfire. We don't introduce gunfire until we get out into the field at eight months old. He's retrieving well. He's dr- driving out in a corner, maybe flushing birds or a spaniel flushing birds, or we're throwing bumpers, and he's interested in that bumper. Then we gradually, progressively increase that popper, and then the the gunfire. So never take never take a puppy out to test something. You know, it's a process to get there. Uh, that's that's a very good point for everyone. You know, to remember. You know, you're not actually testing you, and you need to have the plan, stick with the plan, and and really kind of focus on, like you say, not introducing negative behaviors that uh, um, you know that you're going to have to break later anyway at some point. So you know, and and what are a couple items? You know, I know I've been down to Wild Rose several times, and you guys have like the Wild Rose shop, and I'm sure um, there's a million different things that 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 you guys have as far as gear for a trainer but you know what are some things that you tell people like when they're leaving with their puppy that day you're like hey here are here are the specific items that we recommend that you have to begin this training process okay uh, this is a you can find this at uk lab you'll see that the three different locations we have across the country each of our locations has a pro shop if you will our shop there that has all the gear they need uh, years ago, way, way back, two decades ago, people would come pick a pup from me and they would leave and the pup would come back and they had the wrong gear. They'd use the wrong bumpers, the wrong leads. And it was so we perfected of what we really wanted our dogs to have. When they go home, this is the best product to use. And when they return, we're going to use the same product. So there's no transition back and forth between bumpers and leads and whatever. So we created pro shops at, at our North Carolina, Texas, and at Wild Rose in Oxford, all three have the same gear. So that's one thing about it. And you can find these at that UKLab.com and look at wildrosetradingcompany.com, click on it, and you can walk through with me as I name some of these things and see some of the things that we have. One is we only use a cloth fire hose bump of a proper size. We never use plastic. Uh, it doesn't look like a duck. It doesn't feel like a duck. It doesn't hold scent like a duck, but a fire hose type fabric with, with cork in it is absolutely the best type of bumper to start out puppies on. Uh, the second thing I've already mentioned is the little uh, puppy walker that we have versus uh, a, a, a choke collar or a slip collar. This little puppy walker applies a small amount of pressure around the pups and necks, much like mama would with her mouth. And they work wonders to teaching the dog to like early sit and early leading and coming and so on. Those will be two things that we would like to see them leave with. Of course, we want to start using and printing the whistle we choose to use. If you're going to use whatever predictor product for the whistle, 
We happen to use a 211 and a half Acme English whistle. It's a peeless whistle, so it doesn't freeze in the dock line on, free, on cold days. But whatever whistle you choose, go ahead and start using that whistle in printing, come, set, and so on. So you would go along and say, set, peep, set, peep, and lifting on the lead of the pushing down on the little rear end. They start associating that peep with the set. We, we expect them to, to leave with a proper size dog bowl. We don't leave free choice water around and free choice food around to control, uh, touching the, t- teaching the dog to housebreak or get used to being housebroken. We control the inputs. You'll control the outputs. So we have a three, a three a different three schedules during the day, morning, noon, and evening to get the dog on a feeding schedule. We set the water down. It's a stainless steel bowl that doesn't hold bacteria. Let them have a drink. We pick it up. We set the food down. Let them eat their food. Pick it up. Sterilize it. So it's never free choice when the dog can wander around, take a bite, and go relieve themselves somewhere in the house. Makes it very difficult to house break. So every time the dog drinks water or eats food, we take him back to his designate outside to his designated relief area. It makes house breaking much much simpler. No, oh, that's great. And I see you've also got the uh, the tie out stake. Um, which you kind of mentioned, that's an easy, um, you know, somewhere to just stake the dog up um, and go into that first initial training of, you know, being accustomed to the lead. Um, and and I, I see that's on there. That's a pretty handy one that I'm accustomed to. But you also have um, the Dawkin Deadfowl Trainer on here. When when in the part of your process, when do you guys begin to introduce that particular toy? You know, one thing that I see as a mistake, not that I'm judging other trainers because I'm not really a dog trainer, but I see people get a puppy and they immediately start giving it these duck shaped toys. Um, and, and where do you stand on that? And what part of the training process are you introducing these, uh, dead foul trainers? Good question, because I do, I do like the, the dead foul trainers, uh, better of the proper texture and the Dawkin is a good one. Um, uh, we don't do those until we get into water. Uh, we'll start introducing them early on, uh, during hole conditioning at about seven months of age. We might put a one out maybe once or twice before, but most of our, our dummies, if you want to call them that, are training, uh, the, uh, training, uh, objects that we would go for are going to be the fire hose until we get to that, that point of the hole conditioning. Then we'll teach the dog to hold using the uh, fire hose bumpers and transfer them over to the uh, dead foul trainers. And then we go to the water with them. So we never give them too, uh, too early and we never give them as toys to play with. Uh, none of the types of bumpers. They never have the opportunity to actually play with them. I've seen that one mistake and given to them and that's supposed to build their retrieve drive and desire to get the bumper. Actually, what you're going to do is create a problem of the puppy running out, grabbing it, running out, lay down out there and chewing on it. And now you've got a problem to fix. So just remember this. It's a really easy wild rose law that we talk about in the book. Don't put in a problem that you have to train out later. It's mostly about avoidance. Just think through what you're doing. Do you really think this is going to look good two years from now? Yeah, no, I mean, that's a great point. And I think that's, you know, that's something that every trainer should should really start um, when they begin the process. You know, <laughs> kind of like you said, you're, there's a lot more things to avoid than actually to do. And if you, uh, you know, follow all those guidelines and, and just try to avoid creating any problems, you're going to be better off in the long run, for sure. Uh, I think the last product you have on here that I wanted to ask you about, just kind of give an explanation and how you use it, is the command collar. Um, I don't see a lot of people using these uh, personally, but I do know that they're highly effective. And I know 
they're always on your dogs down at that, uh, down at the kennel. Um, you know, kind of explain what the command collar does and, and kind of why you choose that specific collar. Well, about three months old, we go to that little slip cloth command collar that looks like a slip, slip chain, if you will, but it's actually a cloth collar. And then we transfer that over to our wild rose combination lead that's on that website. Now this is the, this is our main training lead that we perfected over the years. It's rubberized. It's waterproof. The snaps are water resistant and waterproof. Uh, they're very, very durable. It's a three piece, basically a three, three piece British lead. Uh, you can break it down into sections and use it in different ways. We have videos on there how to use it. It's got a steady tab. It's got a slip collar that's adjustable based on the size of the neck of your dog. It's, and we don't want it tight. It should be loose where you mimics the bite of the pack, just like the slip collar or the command collar. Then it's got a little steady tab. Uh, a mistake people make is have a lead too long and they let the pup retrieve without the lead dragging it. Well, the puppy steps on that lead and that inhibits his gait. When he steps on it, lots of times he drops and you're putting in a problem that you have to take out later. So we want to stay away from that. So I created a little steady cab on there. And if the puppy's really small, just use the collar itself and turn the pup loose and let him run with it. When he brings it back, you can catch the collar and catch the bumper and take it from him. So it is a three piece. It's called the combination lead and you can walk on there and see, see how it is and drop down some of our videos on how to use it. Very effective tool all the way up to 12, 14 months of age. Awesome. And yeah, you know, like, like Mike explained here, all of our listeners can go on uklabs.com, check all that stuff out. You can check out the, um, the 16 series videos, um, that were produced with Purina and check out those. Those are fantastic resource for anyone training a dog, no matter, you know, no matter really what stage of the training you're in, you can always go back and, and look at these videos and see, um, exactly how, you know, Mike, does this and Mike's trainers do this for uh, for Wild Rose. It's it's awesome. Well, Mike, this has been great. I appreciate you joining me today, and uh, we're definitely going to have to get you back on soon. Thank you very much for having me. Everybody, good luck with your pups. I'd like to thank Mike Stewart, the owner and operator of Wild Rose Kennels, for joining me today and talking about you know the early stages of retriever training. I'd like to thank our producer Clay Baird for doing a great job and getting this podcast out to you. And I'd like to thank you, the listener, for joining us and supporting wetlands conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks.